0: Kia ora katoa ko Gwen Compton toko and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in the world of local government and local democracy in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now first of all, it won't have escaped anyone's attention that it's been a while since the last episode. There's a few reasons for this, Uh, first there were the summer holidays, then I had a few Uh, pieces of uh, work I needed to get finished through December, January and February. Um, After that I was focused on getting back into the swing of uh, things for council and I had my oldest boy start school as well. Uh, March came around and I had scripted and actually recorded an episode but before I could get to editing it and hitting publish um, it actually became dated so I had planned to do a re-record of it but then our house got hit with Covid. So that took us out for a couple of weeks, and um, it took my voice out, for, out of action for a couple more weeks on top of that, so I sort of uh, focused on resting up and getting that all mended, which brings us to now in the middle of April, unfortunately, um, but I'm at the point where I now feel like I can handle sort of 30 or 40 minutes of voice work and recording a podcast. With all that being said, I am sorry that it has taken me so long. Um, As I said right at the start of this, the podcast does come after all the other priorities in my life, so it is a case of being able to uh, research and script and record and produce and publish and promote this uh, if and when my schedule does allow. Now, rather than picking up with a deep dive in one of the uh, myriad of issues that are floating about the local government sector at the moment, I think that seeing as we're less than 6 months from the local government elections, um, and it has been a while, I think it's useful to step back and take a broader look at the sector and quickly rehash and update uh, what's been going on around the place. Because unsurprisingly, things have changed uh, since November, other than, unless you're talking about Wellington's Merrill race, which evidently hasn't really changed at all. Now, the most topical issue in local government at the moment, and increasingly Parliament as well, is central government's three waters reform, which we covered back in episode two. As a quick recap, the proposal from central government is to take all the drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater um, services and infrastructure, which are currently owned and operated by local authorities, and amalgamate these into four multi regional entities that uh, span across the country. Central government wants to do this primarily because they believe local government doesn't have the capacity to manage the three waters well over the longer term, especially in the face of rapidly escalating costs, uh, increasingly stringent water quality and environmental standards uh, and the impacts of climate change. Basically in a nutshell, there's anywhere up to $185 billion worth of three waters investment needed over the next 30 years and central government believes these larger entities will deliver economies of scale uh, and will be able to borrow money at cheaper rates than local authorities' can. and in theory they believe this is going to lead to lower bills for water users overall. Now to say there's been a mixed reaction to this proposal would be an understatement. At the time of writing this uh, script, and I'm pretty sure it's still current as I'm recording it, there's a group called Communities for Local Democracy, and that's the number 4 in there, not not the word, Um, but it's made up of 31 councils, which is roughly 40% of the 78 local, regional and unitary authorities around the country. Um, And they're taking central government to the High Court to challenge some of the legalities around this. Uh, They're also challenging some of central government's economic modelling, and some of the members have been quite critical uh, of the proposed co-governance model of these new entities. Now, support for the reforms, it is there, um, but it's a bit more muted. Uh, Iwi appear to be generally supportive of the reforms, uh, and this was, I think, best evidenced by the experiences of several councils, which, on voting to join communities for local democracy or making noises about joining them, they were uh, criticised for doing that by their local iwi. Uh, and Dunedin City Council, I think, was a really good example of that, where they initially voted in favour of joining communities for local democracy, uh, and then they got, a, um, I believe, some quite pointed, uh, quite pointed letter from their local iwi, and then they held another vote and reversed their decision to join. Now, I think you would generally struggle to find sort of out and out cheerleaders for the reforms beyond. Um, I guess, some of the uh, Labour Party faithful. But I think you'll find it's very situational uh, when it comes to councils themselves because many of the councils that are covered by Wellington Water, they do appear to be at least receptive to the idea of this this particular reform. Now, that's not surprising, uh, given the well-documented issues we've seen with the metropolitan Wellington region uh, and what they've had with their water infrastructure in recent years. Now, this has been punctuated really recently by the revelation that uh, Wellington Water's fluoridation dosing machinery hasn't been properly working for quite a while, um, and that they'd kept their stakeholder councils in the dark about it. So, given issues like that, and like the uh, breaking wastewater pipes and those things, you can easily understand why many in Wellington would happily see responsibility for those assets handed over to new specialist entities. Auckland Council, obviously, the biggest uh, local authority in the country they've basically taken a position that the model as it's proposed won't work for Auckland now in large part that's because they uh, don't want to be paying for Northland's three waters infrastructure because they've got a lot of uh, there's a lot of need in Auckland and there's a lot of need in Northland as well and uh, on the flip side Northland's councils are voicing concerns over them being dominated by Auckland if they're in an entity with it because as you can imagine the super city has, what is it now, about 1.2, 1.3 million people in it? Yeah, absolutely, dwarfs the Northlands population, obviously. Now here in carpety I think the best way to describe our position is that we're showing a healthy scepticism skeptic- about what's proposed as in the current solution, while we do acknowledge the need for change. Um, we did hold a debate recently about whether or not to join Communities for Local Democracy, but ultimately we let the matter lay on the table while we wait for the next release of information from central government about um, uh, what's going on with the reforms. Now on that note, Local Government Minister nana Mahuta, she had a whole lot of working groups that were looking at various concerns that have been raised by councils, um, there was obviously the governance issues. the Uh, shareholding issues, there were issues around rural water supplies. So they've started to report back and the main one which was um, has come back with 47 recommendations and the government hasn't committed to actually implement these recommendations but they're considering them for inclusion as part of their updated water services bill that will be coming back to the House in the next couple of months. Now in the meantime applications have opened for the first tranche of central government's three waters better off funding and now that better off funding is to assist councils with adapting to the impacts of the reform and making sure that every council in theory is would be better off than what they are now if they didn't have the water assets with them so a quarter of this two billion better off funding has been made available in this first tranche of uh of opening up the for applications but of course this does sort of speak somewhat to the increasingly strained nature and lack of trust between central and local government in that rather than just handing over a quarter of the funding that you're entitled to as a local council if the reforms were to go ahead and trusting local government to spend it appropriately central government is still making councils apply for it with specific criteria on what it can be spent on um, but that's a a uh, recurring theme in terms of the funding model for local government more generally and where that sort of um I guess uh, largesse from central government comes into play to support things now as you can imagine this is actually also a political for football on the uh, parliamentary stage too uh, with both national and act have committed to repeal the three waters reform if they're elected in 2023 and act in particular have been going after the co-governance uh, angle for um it was What's been essentially described as dog whistling from David Seymour. Now what I think is interesting about this is that I sort of mused last year that uh, Three Waters was going to be primarily a local government election issue. And I still think that's going to be the case. I think the biggest heat with this issue is going to play out in this year's local body elections. Um but you're definitely going to see as it rolls on, you, I think you'll definitely see the pressure continue on into the elections next year, even though I don't think Three Waters would be the the big uh, vote changer in terms of parliamentary elections, but it'll still sit there as a little issue that bubbles away. Now that's Three Waters dealt with, just um, as a quick update of where it is. The next big issue that's playing out around much of the country is with councils needing to implement the required changes from the national policy statement on urban development which you'll often hear called the mpsud and i'll try and do that going forward and there's also the associated medium density residential standards uh, mdrs now both of these instruments are being aimed at increasing the intensification of housing and to be fair commercial uh, developments around metropolitan centres and mass rapid transit nodes. Now, the too long, don't read, uh, didn't read version of this is that Tier One urban authorities, which is basically those councils which cover or are part of um, the housing or and employment markets of one of New Zealand's si- bigger cities, um, they need to significantly increase the level of intensification permitted under their district plans. And of course, district plans being the instrument by which communities decide how and where they're going to grow now the two most crucial changes in these uh, the national policy statement on urban development and the medium density residential standards is that uh, it allows intensification of up to six stories around mass rapid transit nodes uh, which is essentially train stations but the future would uh, likely include light rail or light metro stations, uh, which is relevant for Auckland's case, where they're obviously going through the whole light rail discussion at the moment. And those medium density residential standards, they will allow for the building of three dwellings of up to three storeys on each uh, sort of general residential lot. Um, But that's provided that these dwellings can meet what are new uniform standards around the country? And these are things like minimum setbacks, uh, planes from the boundary to the top of the building, those sorts of things. So you don't, as I've said before, you don't get this babushka doll situation where you could endlessly subdivide a section and keep cramming in three different uh, three dwellings on it. There are limits to how small you could make these, which is good. We were trying to avoid having um, sort of issues we had in Auckland and Wellington of shoebox apartments back in the day. Now, councils need to notify these changes to their district plans no later than August 2022. And around the country, that's exactly what's happening right now. Here in Carpety, uh we have what's called a rolling review of our district plan happening because we only made it operative uh, last uh, 30 June last year, after essentially a decade-long process. Um, so we're undertaking a consultation on a draft-proposed intensification plan tra- change. I appreciate that's a mouthful. Um, But that's with a view to notifying the actual plan change in July, so we're doing a bit of pre-work ahead of that to, in theory, make it a a bit easier on ourselves. Now, if you've followed any of the debates over spatial plans, uh, growth strategies, anything like that over the last few years, in fact, over the last 30 years, you'll have seen how these debates usually play out. You have those who are in established neighbourhoods, they'll frequently push back on intensification near them, which... We are not so affectionately called NIMBYism, not in my backyard. Now, with the worsening housing crisis in the past few years, we've seen the growth of a more vocal and more organised group on the other side of the debate, and they've been called YIMBYs. Oh, it's YIMBYism, yes, in my backyard. Now, what's fundamentally changed through all this is that the changes central government is requiring through the NPSUD and the uh, medium density residential standards, they essentially come with caveats that kneecap NIMBYs from opposing intensification like they have been able to do for most of the past 30 years. The MPSUD explicitly recognizes that urban areas change over time, and that change in itself, and change in the amenity values, um, which is generally the outward looking character of an area and how big the buildings are there, um, that in itself, isn't to be considered a negative effect of change anymore, so that removes it as grounds to object to plan changes or resource consents. So that's a pretty fundamental shift in terms of what type of housing is going to be allowed. Um, now, alongside those requirements, um, what's what's crucial is that they are the central government's actually trying to prevent um, councils from having any way of wiggling out of or circumventing the new requirements but god knows councils are trying to still do that because political realities are always going to rear their heads in this debate uh, and we are, as I just said, we are seeing some councils try and test the waters of what they can push back on in terms of protecting or preserving many of what are known in district plans as special character areas or character precincts or heritage precincts and that sort of thing. Now, we've seen this here in Carpeti and this was despite my efforts to get it removed from the consultation on the draft proposed plan change, where we've got, um, in Carpeti we have several uh character precincts, so there's the Waikanae Garden precinct and there's these beach residential precincts. Now these are these won't technically exist when this plan change goes forward, if it goes forward as it does, but what would exist, and this is what I tried to get removed, was what's called local character policies, which essentially try and reapply those character precincts for any developments over and above the minimums that are required by the MPSUD and the medium density residential standards. Now this is also playing out, playing out elsewhere, we've seen Auckland Council has tried to make cases for protecting um, special character and heritage areas, uh, and all of this is despite Policy 6 of the National Policy Statement on Urban Development. It explicitly says, as I mentioned before, local amenity changes, and you can't use change in itself as an excuse to stop change in planning documents anymore you actually can't in theory put these in place um the problem is that there's no precedent around this so councils are literally going to test this out and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um in terms of whether anyone challenges it in the environment court whether the minister has to intervene we're all sort of waiting with bated breath but the this is sort of indicative of why central government got to this place where it was forced to radically change the rules of the game in order to force councils to make as many big changes to intensification as possible because we very much appear to be as a sector hell-bent on sabotaging things. Now while all that is going on, we obviously, this leads into the um, the replacement of the Resource Management Act, and that's continuing to roll uh, um, to roll on at the moment. Now, councils around the country have recently submitted on another discussion document, which is um, which was trans the very simple title, "Transforming Aotearoa New Zealand's Resource Management System: Our Future Resource Management System." Great document title. Um, but beyond that, the government actually announced at the end of. March that they were sort of changing their approach to how they were going to handle the necessary legislation for the replacement of the Resource Management Act. Now previously they were going to introduce the three required bills separately. Uh, Those are the Natural and Built Environments Bill, the Strategic Planning Bill and the Climate Change Adaptation Bill. Uh, Instead, they're now planning to introduce the first two bills – that's the natural and built environments and the strategic planning ones – together, with that now being pushed back into the second half of 2022. As for the third piece of the puzzle, the Climate Change Adaptation Bill, the intention is for that to be progressed before the conclusion of this Parliament in um, mid-2023, but that could well be held up by these delays in the first two bills. Now, while that's frustrating that things are going to take longer, it does actually make sense. Um, The Natural and Built Environments Bill and the Strategic Planning Bill, they work very closely together in terms of how they direct local government to work in this new resource management framework. Now part of the problem with the exposure, exposure draft that we got for the new Natural and Built Environments Bill was that there were significant parts of it that were dependent on what the eventual shape of the strategic planning bill was going to be, and we still haven't actually seen an exposure draft for that either. So introducing those two bills together will help manage some of that tension, though it does beg the question, given that these two bills are so interdependent on each other, why aren't we just incorporating them into a single piece of legislation? Of course, the whole replacement of the Resource Management Act has huge implications for the other big reform on the horizon, and that's the review into the future for local government. Uh, seeing, it has, um, seeing as how so much of local government's work stems from the roles that are given to us under the existing Resource Management Act, uh, that review in itself while still planning at this stage to report back in September 2022 with their initial recommendations that will go out for public consultation. They need to be cognizant of what's happening both with the new resource management framework and in the three waters reform as well now the pan review panel for the future of local government has been virtually meeting with councils around the uh, country as they work in developing their proposals um, they've also recently launched a new online engagement tool which is get vocal in your local where which you can find at get vocal in your um, and that's in theory to help younger and new zealanders engage with their work but actually anyone can go and fill it out and participate in it Um, So they're obviously still ploughing on their work and doing a lot of research about how uh, the the different forms of local government around the world and how they interact and all those things, so there's a a huge amount of work that has to take place um, before they get to September and it's not far away when you think about it, we're already in April. And of course finally, the other big sector that the whole local government Um, So the other big issue that the whole local government sector in New Zealand more widely as a society is struggling with is inflation. Um, For local government in particular, we're caught between rapidly spiralling construction inflation costs, Um, they're often in the double digits, so well above what you're seeing in the consumer price uh, indexes, Um, but we're also dealing with some funding gaps being created. Uh, We had the situation where uh, Waka Kotahi, the New Zealand Transport Agency, they cut back on a lot of their funding that they normally give um, local authorities to do roading work. Now, so we've got the situation where we've got increased costs, we've got less funding coming through the door, um, and we've got residents feeling the pit, the pinch, obviously, with, as I mentioned, consumer inflation has been edging up towards 7%. You've got mortgage rates on the up, um, and you've got wages aren't keeping pace with any of that. So there's going to be a lot of hard choices to be made by councils as they approach their annual plans this year, and there's a lot of pressure on... To what extent can you actually stick with the plan you've got? I think a lot, most councils probably are trying to um, because there's so much infrastructure spending that we need to catch up on because there has been decades of underinvestment in that space, but there are a lot of pressures uh, going on in this year. And now that all brings us to the final thing I want to cover in this overview, and that's uh, local government elections. Now I'm not going to dive too deeply into races around the country other than other than to look at some of the high profile mural contests that are taking place. So let's start in Auckland, uh, seeing a bigger council, so it makes sense. Um, now we appear to have, have arrived at a point where there are th- there are three front runners. The heavy favourite is sitting councillor Efeso Collins. Um, now he won the endorsement of the Labor Party following his early announcement, which essentially helped him see off uh, councillor Richard Hills, who was, very, it was rumoured that he was going to run, and he announced he wasn't going to, due to so he could focus on his family. Now. So that's really given Collins, I think, the um, initial momentum in this. Uh, Now Collins' main contenders to his right, there's the colourful restaurateur Leo Malloy. Uh, Now he's already hit the ground running in Auckland with a campaign bus, which I think people have seen out and about. Um, And then there's Viv Beck, who is the chief executive of Auckland City Business Association, heart of the city. Now what will definitely count, I think, in Collins' favour is that Auckland still uses first-past-the-post, So, as opposed to um, a single transferable vote system that uh, a lot of other councils use across their, their uh, mayoral and council elections. So what this does mean is that if the left vote largely lines up behind Collins, um, helped by that Labour Party endorsement the right vote is essentially going to be split between Malloy and Beck. Now, that makes life a lot easier for Collins um, because you don't have to get a majority in FPP, you just have to have the highest percentage overall. Um, You don't get uh, votes shifting about, obviously, as you go through the different iterations as you do in STV. Now, having said that, I think that as we've seen over the past six years, anything can and does happen in politics, even in uh, first past the post elections. Um, Now in local government, the other thing you've got to keep in mind is that being able to mobilize your supporters to get out and vote is disproportionately more important Than it is in general elections, and that's because of the lower, the significantly lower overall turnout in local body elections. So that'll be a factor as well. Um, You know, how well is Professor Collins able to get out his supporters versus the likes of Malloy and Beck, and whether they can get people to turn out and vote for them. Now, in Hamilton, I should say, actually, before I go into Hamilton, I should say there are other candidates in uh, the Auckland mayoral race. Um, But as I said, I'm just trying to do this quickly, so I'm not going to dive into every single candidate who's announced. Um, So in Hamilton, we've got uh, Mayor Paula Southgate. She's going to be facing off against her deputy mayor, Jeff Taylor, which I'm going to admit will make for really interesting council meetings for their colleagues over the remainder of uh, Hamilton City council's term I think um, to have your mayor and deputy uh, both contesting the mayoralty will will be fascinating to watch I think now in Wellington as I joked earlier there's still only um Tori Farno who's uh, been the, she's the only declared candidate and she recently received the endorsement of the Green Party um there's still no word whether incumbent mayor Andy Foster is going to be seeking a second term I mean You'd assume he is. Um, and there's still no word from Labour Party MP Paul Eagle, who himself is a former councillor and deputy mayor. Um, he's still remaining tight lipped on whether he's going to be seeking Wellington's mayoralty. Uh, in Christchurch, you've got the incumbent mayor, Leanne de- Delzeal. She's retiring. Um, and sitting councillor Phil Major is still really the only main contender who's announced the candidacy. Now, I say main contender, because uh, Ian Channel, who's uh, better known as the Wizard, um, he's also standing, uh, but I think you can imagine how that's going to go. In Dunedin, you've got Mayor Aaron Hawkins, who's announced he's seeking a second term, and there's quite a few various councillors, such as Jules Radich, who's announced that that they're going to stand as well. Um, there's a few councillors, I think, down there who are also sort of publicly musing about whether they're going to stand, so that'll be an interesting race to watch. And uh, down in Invercargill, Sir Tim Shadbolt has announced that he's planning to seek his 10th term as Mayor of Invercargill. Um, and as I think people are aware, the there's been some quite well-documented issues um, and concerns around how he's been performing down in Invercargill. So that will be very interesting to see how that plays out. Now, if we take a look at Northland, I'm um, sort of I may as well move into some of the regional elections now. Uh, You've got Far North District Mayor John Carter and Whangarei Mayor Cheryl May are both uh, both not seeking re-election after they've done three terms each, leading their respective councils. Um, But Kaipara Mayor Dr Jason Smith is seeking re-election. Down in Queenstown, um, their two-term Mayor Jim Bolt is also amongst the various mayors around the country who's announced that he's not going to be seeking another term. Now, of course, the other big, uh, I guess, uh, city we haven't touched on here is Tauranga, where there have been um, there were commissioners appointed in February 2021 by local government minister nana Mahuta, um, and that was after she removed the mayor and councillors in December 2020. Now, what uh, Minister Mahuta announced is that there won't actually be an election for Tauranga City Council this time around. In early March, she announced that the... Um, the commissioners would remain in place. They're currently led by former National Party Minister Anne Tolly Um, and those commissioners are going to remain in place until July 2024 when the next uh, election for Tauranga City Council would be held. Now that timing I think is interesting because uh, the next local body elections beyond this year aren't actually due until October 2025 so it seems a bit odd to hold an election in July 2024 and then a little over a year later hold more elections but i can't see any um comment from the minister or anywhere else that um that that's not the plan it does seem like that is the plan to have two elections very close together i would have thought a sensible course of action would have been to extend the terms of the mayors and the councillors elected in july 2024 right through to the 2028 local body elections um but i guess You've also got to consider what happens with the review into the future for local government as well, because that might have an impact on it. And it also looks like that there might be a, some changes coming up to the actual commissioners who have been appointed there too. Now finally, here in carpety we've had our first mayoral candidate announce, and no, it's still not me because I'm still um, not intending to stand, despite having had a few people telling me last week that I should reconsider it. I'm still, My intention is still not to stand but instead we've had lawyer and local government academic, uh, Chris Mitchell. Now, there's been a lot of speculation and argument about who else might stand and whether uh, Mayor Guru will seek a third term, but I guess you know, we're all going to have to wait and see what happens there. Anyway, that's enough for this episode. I'm Gwyn Compton, this is Local Aotearoa, and until next time, hi rā. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the personal views of Gwyn Compton and are not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council. Authorised by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manly Street, Paraparaumu.